This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to talk about Endeavor's financial woes and what pressure that might be putting on the UFC to put on shows. Was Stephen A. Smith right about Cowboy? We'll play some Cowboy comments. You decide. We'll dig into the mailbag. Plus, Laura Sanko has a goal to be the first female UFC color commentator. Can she do it? We'll weigh in on that as well. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 3 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Plus, never forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. So let's get the uh, show started where we can't... Oh, I just got some breaking news, Cobb. You won't care about this at all. The uh, Kabuki Strength Trap Bar HD that I ordered has been shipped. Can you believe it? Whatever puts a smile on Luke Thomas's face on a Wednesday. Dude, I have gotten... Shab asked me, have you put on the quarantine 10? I'm like, 10, to, 10 squared. I think I put on 100 pounds since then. Uh, this will be here. It says... I'm not sure what it says. I'll, don't worry about this later. Uh, okay, but I'm pretty excited about that. All right, so let's start the show where it starts today. So um, let me ask a basic question to folks out there, <clears throat> which is... Why is the UFC putting on shows? All right, it's a very basic question. And depending on one's perspective, you might have a series of explanations. You might think one explanation is more likely than the other. Right? Uh, one of them has been that the UFC wants to just get back to work because problem solving is what they do. They don't really see a need to maybe slow down a little bit, but not stop altogether. That's one explanation. Another explanation would be, hey, look, man. You know, this is not the NBA where the players have a union and they're collecting checks just sitting on their rear ends. They gotta, they gotta, they gotta fight to eat to to get paid. So um, the belief is that maybe they don't have the money to just give them a stipend. The UFC, so instead put them to work. That's another explanation. Another one might be that um, they can put on shows without the same kind of logistical challenge relative to other sports. Okay, that's one as well. Another one could be Dana White just doesn't believe that the coronavirus is as much of a threat as maybe some other people. Could be right for that, could be wrong for that. Your perspective is the one that will matter here, but that could be an explanation too. All of them could be an explanation, or at least contribute to what we see, and there could be reasons that I'm not even thinking of right now. But there's one that I've not mentioned that needs to get mentioned, and it's something we've kind of hinted at, and what I'm about to say is not a declaration that because this place wrote about it, it is therefore true. But rather, we have been we have been wondering to what extent it was a relevant factor here, and now we're seeing some outside forces begin to wonder just as much as us. And I don't know how you can hear information like this and read it and decide that it's not actually one of the reasons why the UFC is doing shows. It doesn't mean it's the only reason. But it could mean that it's a big one. It could even mean it's the primary one. And to me, among the other ones, at a bare minimum, it deserves consideration among the various explanations. What is that? The answer is Endeavor needs money. Endeavor is the parent company of the UFC. Uh, they purchased them for roughly $4 billion about four years ago, following UFC 200. And this is what was written in the... In, um, in sportsbusiness, sportsbusiness.com. 
Here is what they wrote. The S&P, of course, has warned Endeavor that they might have to seek distressed debt restructuring because of COVID-19. The UFC's deal with ESPN is worth a minimum of $500 per year, but minimum, minimum, but only if events are delivered. And ESPN, of course, pulled the plug on a UFC set for, set, event set for tribal lands, but they're going to go ahead with some shows in Florida. Here's what they write. Uh, COVID-19 is hitting Endeavor particularly hard. It's sports business holdings, which is the UFC, IMG, professional bull riders, on-location experiences, are in totality almost in complete shutdown. Endeavor also carries substantial debts. In 2018, the company was known to have $4.6 billion of long-term debt and $7.2 billion of liabilities against $3.6 billion, excuse me. This does not account for subsequent acquisitions like that of on-location experiences, which Endeavor bought for $660 million in January. As a result of its predicament, the credit rating agency S&P Global has downgraded their risk from uh, highly speculative to substantial risk. Quote, a sizable portion of Endeavor's revenue is event and live event uh, based or otherwise sensitive to the health of the leisure and entertainment economy, which is currently being obviously disproportionately hurt by restrictions on public gatherings. We believe the level of financial risk could motivate the company to seek a distressed debt restructuring if coronavirus containment does not occur by mid-year so that revenue can begin to recover. And this is what they write. This is why Endeavor is so keen to get the UFC back on the air, even if it risks the long-term reputation of the property. Uh, of course, as you know, they, along with Silver Lake Partners and KKR, um, were tried and acquired the UFC for $3.775 billion in 2016, rising to four after EBITDA, um, Purchase was funded by two loans, a $1.3 secure, billion secured loan, and then a $500 million unsecured loan. Um, the debt placed against the UFC is understood to have grown up to $2.3 billion as of March 2020. In order to earn revenue and for the debt to be paid off, the UFC needs to be putting on a show. Sources close to the organization say its media rights deal are structured so that payment is contingent on delivery of events, of which the UFC has promised 42 a year. Should it meet the 42 event threshold, the UFC is set to earn about $600 million in guaranteed global media rights income during 2020, $500 million per year of which is paid by ESPN. The broadcaster pays $300 million per year for media rights for 30 non-pay-per-view events, as well as $200 million per year to be the exclusive U.S. platform for U.S. residential pay-per-views. The UFC also earns a share of revenue from each residential pay-per-view buy, as well as retaining exclusive rights to sell pay-per-view events to commercial establishments. In a good year, it could earn $800 million across its media rights and pay-per-view. Okay, so I don't know how you can hear that and tell yourself that the dire straits of Endeavor don't play a role. Let me up the ante, if I can, for just a second. Two more pieces. Do you remember that NY Post reporter we had on, uh, what was her name? Alexa Steingall? Steingall? Steingrad? What was her name from the NY Post? Steingrad. Steingrad. She reported that, uh, this was months ago, that the UFC was going to take out a dividend and pay of $300 million. uh, And $150 million of that was set to go to Endeavor. And the reason why it was set to go to Endeavor was because they had a failed IPO at the end of last year. They, along with WeWork, it was a sort of a disaster for a lot of companies. And... They needed to get some of that money into the organization, not merely for cash flow reasons, I suppose, but also 
because there were folks who were expecting to gain from the IPO who didn't, and they needed to placate them. In any event, it gets a little bit worse beyond that because um, obviously the IPO failed, and then the, the $300 million dividend was going to be split in two different directions, obviously 150 to Endeavor. Well, they scuttled that because that 150 stayed inside the UFC. That, again, this is speculative. I do not know this. I am not telling you this is true. But to me, uh, if $150 million was going to be paid out to Endeavor and instead it stayed inside the UFC, that's going to enable uh, UFC to meet a lot of its probably business operating costs, to not lay anybody off, which of course is a great thing. But as we know, uh, Endeavor has been in absolute calamity with one-third of their layoffs, 50% wage cuts, and these are ongoing, some of them permanent. Here's another piece of the ante. Hollywood powerhouse Endeavor is looking to raise $250 million by June in a bid to offset crushing blows dealt to its show business properties by the coronavirus pandemic. This, of course, comes to us in the New York Post. Um, as I had mentioned, the conglomerate headed by Ari Emanuel had been banking on getting a crucial $150 million dividend payment from the UFC, but that windfall got canceled last month as the coronavirus spurred a slew of cancellations to the UFC's calendar. That fallout from the coronavirus has ground Endeavor's business to a halt. And now Emmanuel, who inspired the pushy, bombastic lead character Artie Gold, uh, is turning to private equity firm Silver Lake, which already owns a 42% stake in the business. Silver Lake is speaking to other institutions about investing and could also invest itself, said a source with knowledge, adding that $250 million figure was a round number it was presenting to potential investors. Both Silver Lake and Endeavor declined to comment. A source close to Endeavor said, while the private equity firm isn't planning to increase its stake in Endeavor, it's going to support the company financially if it has any liquidity issues. Of course, this comes after the fact that they're going to cut 2,500 employees which make up a third of their 7,500-person 7, workforce. And um, it goes on from there. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There can be any number of explanations that we have to explain how and why the UFC is putting on shows. And some of them could be good reasons. Some of them could be bad reasons. Some of them could just be something in the middle. You could look at some of them positively. You could look at some of them negatively. I don't know how you can hear this, in my opinion, I don't know how you can hear this and come to any other conclusion that this is a major contributing reason to why we are here. I talk about it all the time on my various podcasts, on this show. So often in MMA, we have debates about things that the terms of the debate are not really what the debate is principally about. In this particular case, it's a we're having debates about you know, what do the fighters want and the fighters want to fight and blah, blah, blah. And of course, dude, like we all want to make sure anyone with a, anyone with a head on their shoulders wants to make sure that the fighters get paid. None of that is in any way um, controversial to me. The solution that some of us had come up with was just pay them and don't make them fight. But um, okay. But to me... That's not really what the debate is about, you know, well, the fighters want to fight. Well, it's about keeping them safe. That's, I don't really see that as what the terms of the debate actually are. Instead, here we have a parent company that ha it took out an enormous amount of debt financing to pay for a live event business, among other ones. Now, that live event business is nimble and very successful, being the UFC, but the parent company has reached serious financial problems. 
And it appears by virtually every piece of evidence imaginable, and this is my opinion, that that parent company is leaning on that valuable asset, the UFC, to derive revenue, if at all possible, during this particular moment in time, which can include in ways that we don't know yet could be unsafe. That's a very much a matter of debate. But this idea that what's really driving this is you know national pride, that what's driving this is we got to get back to work. Yeah, that might be some of it. I, I can't dismiss that outright. I would not say that that has nothing to do with it. What I would say, though, is the fighters are here again asked to assume the most risk to make it possible for the UFC to, to generate revenue and for that revenue to then probably, we shall see, offset some of the some of Endeavor's larger issues. That appears to be, all the evidence appears to be telling us that is what's happening. So if you want to have a debate about whether fights should go forward or whether they shouldn't, and they're going to go forward, or whether it's a good idea or whether it's not, or whether it's safe or whether it's not, to me, if you have an enormous financial pressure to make things happen, you're going to find ways to find solutions, but that doesn't mean every solution you come to is necessarily going to be that great if you're under extraordinary financial duress. You might have to cut corners here or there. Now, which ones those are and in what ways? I have no idea. We'll have to see what happens. If they, it happens at all. It's, it's, it's all a function of risk. But I don't want to hear anyone discussing these shows going forward as like, we're giving back to the fans. Maybe some, sure. What in, in my judgment, what is principally driving this is what the evidence shows is principally driving this. Endeavor's in a bad spot. UFC's a successful business. They're nimble. They're being leaned on to, to generate revenue to offset those problems. Everything else, they're just pawns in this entire scheme. This week on World of Basketball, European coaching legend and former San Antonio Spurs assistant coach Ettore Messina dropped by to talk about whether or not he's surprised by the immediate impact that Luka Doncic has had on the NBA. I thought he was going to be a good player in the NBA, honestly. I could not ever imagine that he could have had such an impact right off the bat right? in terms of producing triple doubles like, you know, peanuts. I think that the, the key thing in his career has been that Coach Carlisle gave him the ball and put him at the point guard. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app and Pandora. All right, so Cowboy Cerrone's been doing the media rounds. I saw he spoke to MMA Fighting. He spoke to Mike Bond, which will be relevant in just a second. And he spoke to um, Brett Okamoto of ESPN. Now, we don't have the full interview, right, Cobb? We just have the – what do we have? We just have the regular what? Uh, the Basically him talking about the Conor McGregor fight for the yeah. first time. Now, some folks have said that this really kind of justifies what Stephen A. Smith has said. So I have not heard all of these clips, but I heard most of them. And I definitely went back and listened to what Stephen A. Smith had to say. Here's what I'll argue. I'll argue that there is some symmetry – Right, uh, but not in the way that people think that there is. I'm going to make this very easy for people. I'm going to give you my perspective on this whole matter once again. I will articulate to the best of uh, I can, Stevens, and you can decide who's right, and then we can let that be the end of this. I cannot believe we're out here litigating this again, but here we are. And of course, I want to be clear about this. It's more than the debate with Steven is more than just um, was his assessment of what went wrong with Cerrone right or wrong. Obviously, it's a huge part of it, but also it was partly the tone for a guy who'd just been viciously KO'd. Remember, he told you he was disgusted. 
He couldn't believe, even though he wasn't a fighter, he didn't understand why he didn't do more. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that he had said beyond merely do I did he diagnose the situation with a degree of accuracy. So we can't even get into that. I mean, it's just too long of a segment. I don't have time for it. You know, we got a, we got a show clock to keep here, but keep that in mind. We could get into that just as much. It's just not relevant to this particular consideration. So let's keep the debate where the debate is. Let's get into some of these clips. Okay, so what does Cerrone have to say? Let's hear him out, and then we'll revisit some of what Stephen A. Smith had to say, and we'll examine some of that symmetry. All right? Uh, he says he just didn't show up for the Connor fight. What does that mean? Let's hear. Donald showed up. Cowboy wasn't there. Wrong guy showed up. Couldn't get going. Couldn't get excited. Couldn't get fired up. Didn't want to be there. Biggest fight. All the attention. My time to shine. I didn't want to be there. It was crazy, man. And I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know how to change that. But uh, it sucks, man. Sometimes I show up there. I'm ready. I'm fired up. And I'm ready to go. Sometimes I get there. And I'm like, man, I don't even want to be here. So, don't know. No hmm. idea. Wish I had you answer now, that's interesting. That's the one that's going to have the most symmetry with what Stephen A. said. Cobb, your read on the claim there, he didn't want to be there. What do you make of that when you hear that? Uh, to me, it sounds like what has been one of the big criticisms of, of Cowboys, that in these big moments, he just doesn't show up. So, I don't know, maybe the, the pressures and the stresses of, of being in that main event with all that media against Conor McGregor, maybe it just took him right out of the fight. He says he doesn't know. What do you make of that? Like he's like he's. I don't know why I felt that way. I just felt that way. I mean, it's possible. Like, listen, he's honestly being very honest and candid here, saying, "Yeah, I wasn't there." But maybe it's just one of those things where you don't know why. Like, I I remember I've had wrestling matches where, for whatever reason, like I was always bad in tournaments. Always was. I I never knew why. I don't so know. You, you, just... you were better in dual meets, but not tournaments. Yeah, I was a dual. I was way better in dual meets. I don't know if it's just the weight of, uh, you know, waiting for all these other weight classes to get through their bracket before it gets to me and my brain just loses focus. I never knew what it was. So sometimes you just you rec you can recognize that there's a problem, but you have no idea why the problem exists. All right. All right. So let's keep going with these. <clears throat> I want to get through these. And I want to uh, so we can make a point about him. He said he started feeling out of it two days before the fight. What point in the day did you know that? Two days before the fight. No. Just like, ah, man, it was just hard. But when I showed up there that morning, it was just like, man, like, I don't know, I just didn't, wasn't feeling it. I mean, how, how do you even try to pull out of that? I mean, what was it, Jafari? Like, if I, know I had, if I had the answer, man, I would have pulled out of it. I didn't have the answer. I went in there with my thumb in my ass, made it 40 seconds, you know? So I was, it was a big deal. It sucked. It sucked bad. Boy, he is honest to a fault. But notice what he is saying there, because we'll revisit this in just a second. It wasn't until until two days later, Cobb, two days before, 40 hours before is when he began to, to really internalize it. That's not to say he didn't train. Uh, there was no indication he didn't train just as hard for this one, given the considerations anyway. All right. Now he discusses the particular sequences in the fight itself. Let's hear I haven't really talked to anybody about that fight or anything going in, but um, when he came at me and ran with that big shot and I shot in, man, his hip, I hit his hip bone. Like, that's what started the whole, you know, and then I grabbed a hold of him just to, like, get my bearings back, and he, like, did the jumping shoulder slam, which just mm -hmm. compounded the fog in my brain. 
And then I left go and he head kicked me. So it was just like, you know what I mean? There was no time to like regroup. So yeah. it was from the first second of the fight to when he ended it that I, I didn't even, I couldn't even get my bearings back. So that's interesting to me, Cobb, when I hear that. Here is a tactical reason for why things went this way. In this entire conversation we're having about Cerrone, we're just ignoring Conor McGregor. <laughs> we're just ignoring the fact that, do you remember what he did in this fight, Cobb? I know it was only 40 seconds and it wasn't that long ago. Dude, he sprinted across the octagon when it started and immediately launched into him where he made contact with the hip. Then they lock up. He throws the shoulder strikes. They separate against the fence. Then there was an elbow in there as well, by the way. He cracked him with an elbow, backed him up, head kick. He dropped, inverted, and he grounded pounded him to a finish. Conor McGregor never gave him a moment to breathe, which, by the way, is the exact same thing that Robbie Lawler did, except Lawler went for more conventional strikes, and Cerrone was able to lock him up for a little bit longer. But Cerrone was bicep controlling and overhooking in virtually identical ways. In all of this conversation, my hunch is, Cobb, he's had fights before where he had a fog and he was able to kind of work through it, or he's had some where he felt great and he lost. I'm certain that there's more of a connection, obviously, between fog and losing than fog and just random results. But I want to be clear about here. In all this conversation, no one is talking about Conor McGregor, A, landing, but B, the particular urgency with which he was following everything up. And by the way, Conor was dialed in as well. Seems to be like part of this conversation is being lost if you don't acknowledge that. Yeah, well, I... <laughs> Because it's Connor, and, and because, like I said, you know, Cowboys had been in these big spots where he just seemed like he wasn't himself. I think that becomes more the overwhelming storyline. So it's like the same idea as as Sugar Ray versus Roberto Duran. It's not that Sugar Ray was so good he won. It was that Duran quit, especially when you. Yeah, but Hansi, you do you hear and hear that he quit anywhere? Because I don't hear that. No, no. But I'm saying like and no, Stephen A. He, Stephen A. Suggested he quit, which we'll get to I'm in saying, a minute. But I'm saying when you when you combine both like Cerrone's past problems in the big spot, and then Stephen A. just kind of becoming the storyline after the fact. Right. The fact that Conor McGregor was involved for some reason seems incidental. Seemed, yeah. 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 Pretty much. Uh, and then I think we got one. Oh, people who thought you threw the fight are dumb. I can skip that for the moment. Explains what it's like to be in the cage when you don't know what's going on or when you don't want to fight. Let me hear that part. I can't put words on it. It's like being somewhere that you don't want to be, man. It's like being in a spelling contest and you can't spell and you got to stand up in front of the world and, and try and spell, you know, it's like, like, I just, you know, I just, you're feeling man. And you're trying to like convince yourself and you're trying to wear the face and fake it till you make it. But sometimes I don't know. It's tough. It's a weird sport. Yeah. It's not the first time he's dealt with this. Now let's talk about what Stephen A. Smith said and see if there's any alignment. Cause there is some, but not in the way that people think that there might be. So, let me tell you what I heard in all of this, and I'm going to present the arguments to you. I'm just going to let people decide what they want. Was he right and all of us overreacted? You are welcome to it. Was he wrong and um, everyone was right in their criticisms, or at least part of it anyway? Or maybe it's maybe you feel like it's a mix now. Whatever. Whatever, whatever you want to decide, you can decide. Now, uh, again, there were some other problems here in terms of the language where Smith called the performance atrocious and said he was disgusted. Now, no one is going to sit here and say, Cobb, that's that Cerrone had a great performance, right? You're not going to go in and be like, well, he really, you know, made a strong account of himself, but just came up on the losing end in a tough fight. No, he had a very, very bad performance. And it's okay to say as much. Part of the reason I think people were upset at Smith was not even necessarily, some people thought he was outright wrong. Some people thought, I think this was more on the Rogan side, 
that he was a little bit lacking decorum. You know, there was, I mean, the guy just got demolished in front of the world in the worst way possible. I mean, did he even, I don't think he landed a punch, right? I don't think he landed a single shot in any of the, in the entire fight, if memory, or maybe one at most, almost nothing, if I recall. I'll check on fight metric in just a second. But the point being is, there's a decorum issue. That's not what I'm here to litigate. You can have that one again. And, and MMA fans and media too can be a little bit overprotective in that way. But uh, okay, that's not principally the issue. Here is the issue. This is what he said. You're going to hear some symmetry. I'm going to got two different articles. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just parts of it. Here's what Smith said. Uh, and part of this comes from what he said with Joe, Joe Rogan. Part of this comes from what he said at the post-fight show on ESPN+. Quote, I'm quite disgusted. Let me be very clear. I'm honored to be up here with you guys. I'm a spectator watching the sport. I expected to see more than 40 seconds. I thought McGregor was going to win inside of the two rounds. I thought he would take him out. Here's the deal. 15 seconds in, Cowboy Cerrone was done. He got hit with those shoulders in the clinch, and he was done. It looked like he gave up. Okay, well, here's where the problems began. It did not look to me like he gave up. In fact, Cobb, what you hear Cerrone saying quite explicitly is he was trying to gear himself up. Now, he was having problems doing that, but quitting is the exact opposite. Quitting is then relenting to the pressure. Quitting is suggesting I don't want any more of this. I'm going to look for a way out. At no point in anything that I heard did I hear anything approximating that. In fact, I heard the exact opposite. Is that what you heard as well? Yes or no? That's what I heard as well. But I guess devil's advocate, you could say sure. if, his, if his brain wasn't in it, maybe he was looking for the way out. Maybe, he didn't re- maybe, he didn't, you don't, maybe you don't even realize you're looking for the way out. But if your mind's not ready to fight, maybe you're just looking for the first out you can find. Yeah, but show me where in the fight he was doing that. Oh, I just think if you, and if the argument, if the argument, I'm going to say this one more time. If the argument is it's when he was holding on to McGregor to get his bearings. First of all, he had just been hit in the face. Remember McGregor attacked him (laughs) like it was, you know, like he was on the clock. Okay. Go back and go back and watch the opening of the Robbie Lawler fight. Cerrone does the exact same thing. By the way, a fight that he lost as well. Cerrone. He holds on to Lawler until he can get his bearings and it goes for much longer. And he does that because he needed a second to gather himself. The difference is McGregor is crafty and just simply didn't give it to him. But the idea that he had just decided to lay down, show me where Cerrone said he decided to lay down. That he was, that he was overwhelmed, yes, of course. And that he was going to be more easily overwhelmed based on this lack of readiness, sure. Laying down is not what I heard. At no point did I hear that. Now he continues. McGregor only hit him with a leg kick to the arm, and that's it. All right? I'm not going to be overly judgmental about that. Uh, you know, the difference between a fighter that's calm, cool, and collected and ready for the pressure, and it's outweighed by somebody that's cl- clearly in over their head. When you look at Cowboy Cerrone, that was not a guy that was prepared to fight tonight. That part is true. We knew Connor was going to be prepared. Sure. We knew Connor was going to be ready. We wondered whether or not he would take him out early. Obviously, as the fight goes on... Cowboy Cerrone is the bigger, stronger guy, supposedly. Yeah, that's debatable, too, I suppose. For him to be hurt in 15 seconds, get away from the clinch, and still let Connor right back at him, come on, you're smarter than that, except for tonight. Again, we've been over this a couple of times. Number one, he didn't really ever have a moment in the fight to gather himself, especially given the headspace he was in. But okay, Smith has one point there. He was not prepared to fight tonight. Except here's the problem, Cobb. In saying that there's symmetry there, and there is, there's pretty clear symmetry there, It's not enough to exonerate Smith. 
And the reason why, I think I have it here. Oh, I had it here. God damn it. Um, well, first of all, let me get your reactions while, before I can finish my point. My point. Well, yeah, it, it does give some credit or so back to Stephen A because he was right on some things. But yeah, the outright quitting and stuff like that. I, I'll, I'll never let that one pass. He, he uh, Again, we've been over this. We're not even saying you can't say someone quit in a fight. Yeah. But you better have good evidence for it. Right? Yeah. Here's my here's my here's what I think. I think Amir Khan quit against Bud Crawford. He got hit in the balls. He didn't like the way it felt. He turned to his corner and just goes like this. And he seemed I mean, we've seen people writhing in agony and sort of find a way to go on. I think Amir was like, ah, I had enough. And he quit. Now you can make whatever judgment you want about that, but he quit. Or at least or at least there's good reason to think he quit. I don't that Cerrone was easier to beat because he was mentally struggling with the competitive space, sure. That he laid down and made a conscious choice to do that, where is your evidence? That he, that he got bum-rushed by Conor McGregor? Yeah, good fucking luck, man. Yeah, there's a big difference between not being mentally in it and just making mistakes or, or getting caught and quitting. Like, you can see quitting a lot of the time when... Like if you've trained, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at all, every now and again you see a guy tap out in a position that there's no possible reason he should ever tap out. Right. And you're like, oh, okay, guy wanted out of this. Yeah. Or he doesn't. Even, or uh, maybe if you if you, uh, if you tap to pressure, like if yeah. you're just tired, you know. Or you see a guy who's like not even attempting to fight off a rear naked choke. Like you know you're supposed to go for the hand that's going across right. your throat. You're not, you not, just, you're not even trying to hand fight. Right. Yeah. You just watch them slide right in. You're like, okay, he wanted out. Yes. Like there, there's a big big difference between this guy just wasn't ready tonight right. and quitting. Right. Let me go on. He, this is from uh, a different... I think this is from the uh, post-fight show. Uh, step back, gather yourself. The man's got over 50 fights in his career, for crying out loud. You know how to fight. We've seen you. 17 submissions, 10 knockouts. Excuse me. Step back and go like this. I mean, he must have done some gesture. Okay, he caught me with a shoulder. I'm a little bit rattled right now. Let me catch my bearings. Let me catch my breath. I'm not even a fighter, and I know this. So now we are lecturing fighters about proper tactics. With, you know, which I even... I've got... I'm a, I'm a zero, and I'm usually hesitant to do that, rather than to say, here are what best practices are. You should maybe be in more accordance with them if things go wrong. But more to the point, he tried to clinch. He got hit with the shoulder strikes, and then the elbow, and then they separated, and then Connor was on him. He tried to fight back at that point. The idea that he had some grand moment. I mean, I'm not saying you couldn't have done things better, but the idea that there was like some obvious failure here, um, I'm a little bit more hesitant to say is, is uh, I'm, I'm, I'm outright saying is not true. Quote, this guy knows better, and somehow, some way, you're in there with Conor McGregor, and I'm going to tell you all something right now. He never had a pay-per-view before. He never, uh, he's not, he has not been a champion. It could be that the lights were a little too bright. I've covered sports for a quarter century, not this sports, but sports. There have been plenty of examples where I've seen guys that when the bright lights are brighter, palms get sweaty, backsides get tight. Remember the whole butthole tight argument? We're back to that. And they don't show that particular night. And that's what happened to Cowboy Cerrone. He didn't show up, period, and I don't understand. Now, again, there's symmetry there. He didn't show up. He says he didn't show up. Here is the problem with Smith's arguments. At a surface level, there is some symmetry there. Cowboy is lending a little bit of credence to what Smith said in just terms of not being dialed in when he needed to be and probably could have taken more. But one, it looked like he laid down to him. There's virtually no evidence for that, number one. Number two, when you actually look at the tactical choices that he made, none of them were exactly bad, and it removes the agency from Conor McGregor, by the way, attacking him like a zombie in Train to Busan. And third, Cobb, here's the point that I think is really being lost. He said that on that night, 
and repeated it over and over and over again. Namely, he's never had a pay-per-view before, right? You have consistently made a factual error about this. He is one of the most experienced fighters in that roster. He had been in many pay-per-views before, many main events. He had never been in a pay-per-view main event. So the fact that you have... Here's the thing about Smith. He is saying that, well, he didn't show up, and he is pegging it to a... Being overwhelmed by a lack of experience in that particular setting. To me, that's a stretch. To me, there's virtually no evidence for that. Now, your point is he's had competitive issues against the top dogs. And against top dogs, maybe he psychs himself out. That could be the case. We're all kind of speculating here. Let me give you the evidence that I have been giving since this whole issue went down. Number one, there's a whole lack of decorum, which we didn't get into. That's fine. If your argument is he didn't show up, Cerrone will confirm it. But Smith is pegging it to a particular lack of experience against this particular moment, one which he factually can't even state correctly over and over and over again. And more to the point, I have been raising this. If you consistently lose to the very best guys in your division, but you beat everyone else, Maybe you're just not one of the guys who's the very, very best of their division. And Cerrone has an incredible record, but I don't know if you could say he's one of the best lightweights or welterweights ever by virtue of the fact that he has not held a title. And whenever he faces the top tier, guys who are championship caliber, with the exception of Eddie Alvarez and some other ones, Benson Henderson, he tends to lose. Number one. Number two, I'll say it one more time. That was five fights in 364 days, Cobb. That was Alexander Hernandez. That was Al Iaquinta, a five-rounder. That was Tony Ferguson, a loss, which, by the way, he was getting tuned up in the second round, and his face was all messed up. Then he got stopped inside of a round against Justin Gaethje, and then he had to go fight Conor McGregor. If you can beat all five of those guys, you're one of the baddest dudes on earth. If you can beat him in 364 days, you're seriously another level of awesome. I'll end on this, because I know we're gone way too long. I'll end on this. If the argument is he didn't show up, clearly he didn't perform ably, clearly. If the argument is he didn't show up because this was all too much for him, you are allowed to speculate in that direction. But I don't think the evidence speaks to that. Talking to a highly experienced fighter who has had trouble against the very best, this is one of those guys. The bigger issue to me is he he had ground himself into a pulp, Cobb. He had ground himself into a pulp. One of the main obstacles to getting going for competition is a lack of adequate rest, maybe preparation he had. He put himself on a frequency of competition that is impossible to have success on. And by the time it ended up in McGregor's arena, it it was way too much for anyone to handle. Way too much. That is not the same as saying he's been, he laid down. That is not the same as saying he missed obvious tactical choices. That is not the same as saying, um, you know, this was a guy who uh, the bright lights got to him. He's been under a lot of bright lights, and you've never seen. He's been under a lot of bright lights, and there's just not evidence to conclude that that is the kind of thing that derails him. In fact, he was feeling it 48 hours before he even got under those bright lights. Although if you want to say it was other kinds of bright lights, I suppose you can. Cobb, I'll let you have the last word on that. What do you make of my argument? I think your argument is actually completely fair, but we tend not to be fair in sports. We tend to just get the label and that's the way it is. Like 
I, I to say yes, he's been through the meat grinder. A lot of fight, fights, a lot of fights in one year, every single year. He's had these moments, though, like, like we talked about over and over again. Whenever it was the big shot for Cerrone, he didn't come through. And unfortunately, in sports, you get that label of choker, whether it's fair or not. Yeah. I mean, no one talked about how good the Patriots were at all the times they were beating the Colts. It was that Peyton Manning can't win the big game. Right. Right. So I mean, again, so people are, people are we're gonna have, we have to close it off the segment here, but people are going to decide for themselves. In the end, if I think if you lose to the very best guys consistently in your career across two weight classes, it means you're really good, but you're not one of them. Or you can call him a choker. Really depends on what kind of consideration you want to give it. But to me, the obvious explanation here is that this guy was trying to do way too much in way too short a time frame. And it was grinding him down. He was coming off of two consecutive TKO losses, one of them pretty bad. And he ended up in Conor McGregor's space with just not nearly enough time to really get his mindset right. And maybe, even if he had, he still would have lost anyway. So, Or you can just decide that Stephen A. Smith saying his butthole was tight is really the defining way to understand this. The Ock and Barack Show. is either make the big fights happen, fighters take less money, or stand their ground and wait till we get to a point where their audiences, that might not happen for another year. The big fighters like AJ, like Canelo, all of these big names, are they willing to wait a year without fighting? Can the networks deal with that? Can the promoters deal with that? And eventually it's going to come down to the point where you either take it or you leave it. There's no more money for you to get. The Ock and Barack Show, weekdays from noon till 3 Eastern, only on Sirius XM. Fight Nation Channel 156. Have a question about MMA, sports, entertainment, or life in general? If people just came to me for the answers, the world would be a better place. Email Luke at LukeThomasShow at gmail.com and get the answers to all those burning questions during the Luke Thomas Show Midweek Mailbag. All right, we're back. Luke Thomas Show. All right, not a moment to lose, Cobbs. Let's get right into it. It is time now for the TLTS Midweek Mailbag. Kick it off, good friend. Answer my question! All right, this comes from David, who another one who is bringing up this movie from our movie brackets not being in. Well, let me guess, uh, best of the best? Yes. <laughs> Dude, people got legitimately bitter. We did not include best of the best. And he says, how is this movie not in your fight bracket? What is your opinion of the movie in general? And a little trivia for you. What Van Damme main villain plays a nobody part in another Van Damme movie? Oh, I, c- I couldn't tell you the trivia. You got, did you know the answer? I think I do. Who is it? I don't know the, I don't know the gentleman's name, but the guy who played Tong Po in Kickboxer yeah. is also in Bloodsport. I believe he's from the guy from Brazil, I think. The one who uh, Chong Lee breaks his leg. That's Tong Po? That's Tong Po, yeah. No. Yeah. Michelle Mike Michelle Kesey is his name. Uh, wow, you're right. It is him. I would have never guessed. For years that I that that got past me. I think I was watching it on like I think I was watching Bloodsport on AMC and they were doing little uh, trivia or something like that. And I saw that and I was like, oh okay, wow. It's amazing what a shaved head and a couple scars, a couple fake scars can do. Also, he got more bricked up for Tong Po, didn't he? It feel it felt like he was bigger. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't say bricked up, but he looked bigger for sure. Wow, he's neither Thai nor Brazilian. He's Moroccan. <laughs> Sometimes you get that perfect ethnicity where you can play anything. That is awesome. That is awesome. Uh, okay, no, I did not know that. All right, what's the original question? Like, why didn't we put it in, or where, 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 what did I think of best of the best? Both. Yeah, the original. Why didn't we put it in? And 
Or how is it not in? How did and we not put it in? Because I remember somebody called on the phone at that time and was like, yo, you should put in best of the best. Did we just dismiss it? Here's the problem, and this might be on me. I was writing everything down by hand, and a lot of the times, once I take a couple hours removed from my own handwriting, it gets a little bit difficult to read on the second pass. You're like a doctor? So Yeah, so I might have wrote it down, but just could not read it when I was putting stuff in and just missed it. But again, I don't think it's a, a, the travesty that everyone says. We learned a lot from this whole thing, and it's that these movies don't go past the first round. Digstown made it once. But that's about the only one. Here's what I've learned. It's that most of you have the cinematic taste level of a toddler. And you're not to be trusted with any of this. So uh, let me see. Let me see here. Uh, I'm trying to find this movie. Best of the best. All right. How did this get rated? Um, Roger Ebert hated it. There is not a single scene in this movie that I found amusing, original, or interesting. What we really have here is a documentary of the actors wasting their lives. <laughs> that is awesome. Oh, that is awesome. Uh, there's not even a tomato score for it. The audience gave it 72%. Um, I didn't I'm surprised it's that high. Yeah, Philip Ree is in this. Uh, let's see. Here's another one. Well, hold on. No, I mean, it's got such bad reviews. Really bad reviews. I mean, here's my point. Listen, however good Best of the Best is, it's not nearly as good as The Night Comes for Us, and The Night Comes for Us lost to, like, something stupid. I Actually, no, I think The Night Comes for Us lost to uh, The Fighter, which, respectable. That's I mean, respectable I can live loss. with it. I can live with it because of how good the movie of The Fighter is, but... The point being is, there was what, what, what did they think be, the best of the best was going to do? Beat Enter the Dragon? <laughs> you, you think it was going to beat Rocky Three or something? Like it was all, it was never going to win. So who cares? Enter the Dragon beat Raging Bull for Christ's sake. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> fuck you're, off. You're not gonna beat. <laughs> yeah, you had no chance. You had no chance. So you can these '80s karate movies. You had an '80s karate movie. It was called Karate Kid, and you voted it out. So S a D. How did you like the response to our uh, our winner in the bracket? So many butt-hurt Rocky fans. Wow. Do they need some baby wipes today on their rear end? Woo! Suffering little things, huh? Amazing. And this guy, one guy was like, man, all Luke does is shit on Rocky in this, <laughs> on this show. And it's like, dude, I never, ever once shit on Rocky in my life until I realized not that the movies are bad. But how, excuse me, but how much they're overrated, how much people think that these are like the greatest gift that cinema has to us. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? Like Rocky, the first Rocky, legitimately just a great movie. Rocky two, pretty good. Rocky three. Yeah. Clubber Lang's cool. Rocky four. It's like, all right. I mean, the villain's fine, but that's really about it. You know, and it went downhill. Creed picked it back up again. Okay, fine. But the, the amount of overrating, like it's like sacrilegious to say a movie that's just over you know reheated generic bullshit is exactly that people lose their minds all right y'all <laughs> disgust me next <laughs> Bam, motherfucker. all right this comes from fabian who's got actually some interesting uh, an interesting covid19 fact i can send i'll throw this off to you if you're okay. interested is this another covid truther no, no, not at all. Oh, yeah. uh, he says, uh, hi, Luke. Uh, I am actually an Austrian journalist. 
and I watched your work very closely and really appreciate it. Maybe this will interest you. I just read an article about doctors from the Innsbruck University Clinic talking about a bunch of COVID-19 patients with very, very mild symptoms. They are deep sea divers. They checked their lungs after they recovered from COVID-19, and even though they had only mild symptoms, they showed irreversible lung damage. Mm, I've heard about this. So he said the doctors described how shocked they are and that they even double-checked the radiographs because they couldn't believe that seemingly healthy young people suddenly had such damaged lungs like that. The doctor is quoted with, we don't know what's happening here. Uh, Diving is impossible for them now, and their capability of performing is rendered down. Yeah, so now you wonder, let me guess, what's going to happen to a fighter who might get it? Yeah, exactly. So he says, this is. I think this is very interesting in the context of UFC setting up fights. If the fighters contract COVID-19 and only have mild symptoms, their careers possibly could be damaged and uh, massively and permanently. Do you know what's so bizarre about this effing disease? It's like, it's how inconsistent it is. I mean, it's consistent in certain ways, obviously. You know, headache, lack of breath, chills, right? all the sort of classic symptoms that people get, apparently, when they get this. Did Ak and Barak talk about what they got? Because they both had it, obviously. Uh, I don't know how in-depth they've gone, to yeah. be honest. Um, here's the thing about it, dude. It's like we know so little about this goddamn thing. You know what I mean? Like, here's one thing you're bringing up. It's like, is this going to have consequences for us? Nobody really knows. And the one that's really baffling to me is, as, as you know, Cobb, and we've all heard and read at this point, some of the mortality rates or even just hospitalization rates are going to be affected by other comorbidities that somebody has, right? So if they're super overweight, if they have diabetes or something, right, these could affect who dies and who gets hospitalized. China, as you well know, has a lot of smokers. And so we learn if you smoke and you're a heavy smoker, you know, this is not a great thing to have right now. On the other hand, they're finding out that people with asthma aren't facing nearly the same problems uh, as they had, you know, worried that they were going to face. And it's like, you can't make, it's so, and that now they're talking about how the virus can trigger other organ damage. So people are getting heart palpitations and heart attacks, strokes, young people are getting strokes, liver damage, kidney damage. But if you were you an asthmatic, you're fine. Like, how is that possible? I don't, I don't even understand that. So it's a worrisome thing, man. But like, what are we supposed to do? You know. Oh, by the way, I you know what I watched yesterday on TV. I've been everyone. Their brother was telling me to watch it. What's that? Contagion. I don't think I've ever seen that movie. <laughs> Matt Damon, Gwyneth. Pal- I was say Matt Damon's in it, right? Yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, Brian Cranston, some other ones as well. For like two thirds of the movie, dude, they get it eerily correct. It eventually veers off in its own direction that's far beyond what we're having to worry about. But, dude, there's parts of it where you're like, holy crap. Because the movie came out in 2011. And so you're thinking to yourself, well, how accurate could it be? Dude, scary accurate. Scary accurate. Whoa. I mean, the whole China wet market thing, the whole nine yards. But I also saw, um, did you see, uh, you have Netflix, right? Yeah. So they put out, you know, Netflix has that explained thing that they do on Netflix, that series with uh, Vox Media, my former employer. And not just Vox Media, but the actual site. People always get this wrong. There's Vox Media, which owns everything. And then there's Vox.com, which is the left-leaning site. This is associated with Vox.com, but it was like a coronavirus primer, primer. Like, what do you need to know about it? They did make an interesting point. They actually made a point in this, which I had not seen before, which is to be a pandemic, a disease has to kind of hit the sweet spot of being contagious for a long time but not killing you right away there has to be a long lag 
and in Contagion, the movie, the thing killed you almost instantly within like 48 hours. That would not be great for, um, even if it's highly contagious, that would not be great because it you, with COVID-19, apparently the incubation could be, what, 14 days, they're saying? So that's why it has the pandemic possibilities because it can spread a lot before you really ever succumb to its worst symptoms, if at all. So fun conversation we're having about these end times we're living in, Cobb. It's great. Next. I got mail. Yay. Well, I care after going for that one to go to uh, someone who just not exactly criticizing your position on things. But oh, here we go. Comparison you made. Right. Uh, for the record, this person is a doctor. Okay. All right. Time. Well, we'll take it. We'll take so it this in stride. This comes from David who says, uh, first off, I've noticed since your daughter was born, you, you've gone a bit soft. But as the father of two girls, five and 13 years old, totally get it, man. <laughs> uh, FYI, I love hearing your daughter's voice in the background. Uh, now the reason for this email, your comments regarding whether media should comment if pre-fight HIV testing wasn't done is a poor comparison to COVID-19. Okay, tell me why. Uh, the means of transmission, treatment in life, long effects of HIV are very different and frankly way more burdensome. I would argue the best comparison would actually just be influenza testing. The transmission is similar, and according to the CDC, it led to 34,000 deaths last year, 34,000 plus deaths last year, with 35 million people sick, and that's with uh, immunizations. Right. If fighters should be tested for COVID-19, and I'm not arguing they shouldn't, uh, they should also should they also be tested for influenza, any other tested needing. Uh, as a physician, it seems like we lose track of influenza's impact and appear to thus far overemphasize COVID-19, though it has led to more than 44,000. It only 44,000 deaths. It has only led to 825,000 sick. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. He said, and that's without any uh, immunization. Right. Okay. So let me make this point. I mean, maybe I'm just wrong on this one. So if I am, just tell me I'm wrong, Cobb, because here's why I made it. I did not make the HIV comparison because I thought they were similar infectious diseases. Right, and I'd asked even Fernanda uh, Prachesh, which I'm sure I'm saying that fucking wrong again, about this, and she didn't find the comparison meaningful either. So maybe I'm just wrong about this one. But let me tell you where my mind was coming from, and I'll let you decide if I'm right or wrong. It wasn't that the idea that COVID-19 is as dangerous as HIV. It is not that COVID-19 is as transmissible or carries as many lifelong consequences as HIV. Again, remember I told you how Vox had shown that little chart about you know, what makes a pandemic, it has to hit that sweet spot between how deadly it is and how contagious it is. It turns out that HIV now with medicines is all the way on one side of the graph in terms of being contagious, but it's a little bit more deadly, obviously. But even then with the medicines, it's not as deadly. Okay. Point being, it's in a different spot on the chart. I'm not comparing the two in that sense. Merely here is what I am saying. We are aware that COVID-19 carries significant health risks. If not for the people who contract it, then for others, they may get into the vulnerable population. If an organization was not screening for HIV, which I know carries a different set of risks, but certainly for the person who has it, fairly significant, there would be monumental outrage. People would be saying, what are you doing? And it turns out that the screens that we have for HIV in combat sports are pretty good, right? They work. You don't hear about it hardly at all, if ever, except in a situation like that. My point being was, if a promotion is not crossing its T's and dotting its I's to protect its participants from something that could endanger them, granted HIV has a little bit less of a situation, uh, uh, it's not as applicable as the flu, but still, there would be outrage about it in the former. Why wouldn't there be outrage about it in the latter? Now, I guess the answer might be it's a different disease, which I get. I understand that if they have different impacts on people's lives, 
But if we're not, if we have a good protocol to screen for this particular kind of infectious disease, why would we not have another one uh, for one that may not have the exact same risk factors for those who get it, but still carry lethality for the population in general? It's just a poor comparison. Um, Here's what I would say. The flu one is obviously a better comparison. I'm not saying HIV is the worst one. I'm just pointing out I've lived through situations where guys couldn't get licensed. So they went to West Virginia or Indian casinos and they weren't getting HIV screened. And you say to yourself, holy shit, dude, you're not even getting your blood tested for HIV. Are you kidding me? There's uproar about it. My whole part is we're living through a pandemic and we're not going to screen for the thing that is causing the pandemic. That that see there seemed there there was an incongruity to me. Yeah, no, I I actually thought it was a valid comparison. I mean, like you said, like these are all things. There are certain things that we test for now that are just doctrine. You have to test for these things. HIV being one of them. So you're right. In the middle of a pandemic, when we're worried about how contagious this thing is and how it spreads, testing for it, you would think, would be one of the testing criteria to fight. So I think, yeah, in that sense, yeah, I think it's I think it's a fine comparison. All right, I didn't think I was going crazy. All right, with the limited time we have, any other one you want to squeeze in here? Yeah, we can get one more in here. Answer my question. This comes from Austin, who says, uh, "Hey, Luke." I hope this email finds you well. I'm a huge fan of Morning Combat and the radio show. Your, on- your honesty and your hard work is infectious. Uh, question, though. What brand are your new red earbuds? Everybody like asks about those things. Wow. Do, do, do you like them? Are they better than AirPods? I'm looking for a new pair. Can I tell you how disappointed I am in these things? Which, let me say this. You're asking what the brand is. Make sure you hear my whole answer on this. Because it may be very different than what it sounds like up front. I have the new Samsung Galaxy earbuds, right? That's what I have. Okay, they work as advertised, and they have they do what they're supposed to. And here's how I know: my wife has the old school ear pods or AirPods, whatever they're called, from Apple. My mother-in-law has the new ones, the ones that have all the bass and the boost and everything. These are better than hers, if you ask me. So, in this market for what this is, they work really well. The touch sensitivity works. The Everything it says it's supposed to do, it does. But Cobb, I've been doing and listening to over-the-ear headphones most of my life. There's no comparison. There is no comparison in the sound at all. People talk about, yeah, the music sounds really good. I can hear the bass in these AirPods. I have listened to the very best Apple has to offer, and this is among the best that Android has to offer, essentially, or you know, Samsung, an Android um, user. It's not even in the same ballpark as my Bose over-the-ear headphones. Plus, my Bose over-the-ear headphones have a microphone that I can do for radio shows that sounds really, really good when I have to go be interviewed somewhere else. So I'll say this. If you don't really care about getting the very best sound and you want something that's sleek and convenient, these are great. But the sound is not even close to what over-the-ear headphones are. And it never, I don't know if it, well, I can't say never will be. But I was shocked. I'm like, this is the very best in the in the line, and they sound like ass compared to my bows. Okay, so that's where I'm coming from. All right, keep the emails coming. Luke Thomas Show at gmail.com. Luke Thomas Show at gmail.com. Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje face off for interim lightweight gold at UFC 249. Join Sirius XM Fight Nation this Sunday at noon Eastern for post-fight reaction and analysis from Jimmy Smith and RJ Clifford. Will Gaethje derail Ferguson's chance to face the undefeated Habib Nurmagomedov? I am undisputed UFC lightweight champion. This is not regular fight. 
This is my dream fight. Find out on your home for MMA. Series XM Fight Nation Channel 156. You guys know we've had Laura Senko on the show a number of times, right? Former fighter for Invicta. What would you call her now? Um, I'm not sure what her official title is, but she did that interview with Dana White where they, where Dana kind of tra- <laughs> kind of trashed Cyborg. But you might know her more from, let's see what. Um, she does some sideline reporting at times. She's interviewed all the fighters backstage at the Contender Series. We What, what did we call that segment with her, Cobb? Do you remember the name of that that we had for the, the Contender Series recap? Yeah, about last night. About that? last night, that's right, with Laura Sanko. So... Uh, what we discovered doing that was she could do really great analytical work, like really great analytical work. She's been some of the better, she's done, I should say, some of the better analytical work that we've ever had on the show, irrespective of gender. She really knows the fight game. Now, um, to me, she is fine in the role as sideline reporter. She can do it well. Look, I'm not trying to be creepy, but I don't think I'm out of place for saying obviously she looks good on camera um she checks off the boxes of somebody you would need to do that role and there's nothing wrong with that role but i wonder if she's sort of being pegged and i don't know this for a fact but i sort of wonder if she's being pegged as well here is a person who you know um former fighter so she can know her way around the fight game kind of like I said, it looks good on camera. Let's just put her in an... It's not an easy job, but it's an easy way to get... How do I say this exactly? Oh, that's all she's good for. And that's a hard job, dude. It's a hard job. It's not an easy job. I've done sideline reporting. I sucked at it. Wow, was I bad. Really bad. It's not easy. So it's a difficult job. But the question is... Is the UFC, in putting her in that position making full use of her ability, right? And I would submit to you that they're not. So she actually did an interview, I think was at uh, Mike Bond on MMA Junkie. Why she's talking to that loser, I'll never know. But she says she wants to be the UFC's first female color commentator. Let me hear some of this audio. You know, my dream would eventually be to be able to be part of that booth. Um, I think... One of the things uh, that, you know, we touched on earlier, one of the things that's kind of allowed me to even succeed in this job, given no broadcasting skills whatsoever, is that I really do understand the fight game. And over the years, um, I feel like behind the scenes and production meetings and things like that, and just in hanging out, um, I've been able to kind of demonstrate to all of the guys who sit in that booth, whether it's Paul or Dom or Bisping or whoever that, you know, I really do know what the hell I'm talking about. And so my hope is that one day um, I can, I can, you know, have a little bit, even more of a voice there, but any amount of time I can spend up there talking with those guys is, uh, is pretty awesome. Yeah. No, I have a reaction to this, but we have another clip. So I want to hear that first, but she talks about some of the obstacles um, in terms of joining the commentary team. Let's hear this part as well. I would love that. I, that, yes, that is, that is definitely a goal. I don't, I don't think it's one that's necessarily going to happen anytime soon, but it's one I'm, I'm, I'm working toward. And, uh, I hope, I hope one day to, to make that come to fruition. It's tough though, because it, the, the hurdles that I think, um, are in my way are not necessarily ones that people would automatically assume are the problem. Like, you know, Oh, they don't want a woman. That's not, I don't think that that's the case. I think that, um, they really like to have former UFC fighters there 
And I think they really like to have a higher profile former UFC fighters there. So that's, you know, one thing that just doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't happen on my resume. Um, but I, I like to think that over my years, uh, reporting and doing not just reporting, but the variety of stuff that I do with the UFC, the contender series, I'm able to inject a little bit more of my fight knowledge, I think, into the interviews that I do. And I can tell that over time, people have started to realize that, you know, I really do understand the game and can provide on the spot, you know, analysis as to what is happening in a fight uh, in that moment, not just ask the kind of, you know, you know how it is in post-fight interviews. There's, yeah. there's certain questions that you always ask, right? It's not, it's not always, sometimes you want to get in depth, but it's not always rocket science. Um, so I, I would love to have any type of role where I can kind of stretch my legs in terms of providing analysis. All right, so let me react to some of that if I can here. Uh, she's right about the obstacles. I don't think that they're like, oh, women can't do this job. I mean, you know, maybe that's somebody there, but I doubt that. I think they like to have as many people in those roles as they can who they think would be fit along in accordance with what they're looking for. I really do not understand this idea that, that only UFC fighters can do it. I, okay, here's why I say that. Obviously, anyone who fought is going to know more than somebody who didn't, in general. In virtually every case, probably, let's say. And then someone who fought in the UFC is probably going to know more than somebody who fought just in MMA. Not in every case, but let's say in many. And then someone who fought at a really high level, in a very visible capacity, they're really going to have a lot of insight because that's the closest thing to what they're calling. right? They're not, you're not taking a UFC fighter and asking them to call a regional MMA, which would kind of be overkill. You know, You could do it, but it'd be kind of overkill. But who do you get to best understand, you know, the the pressure of doing media and what the walkout is like and blah, 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 blah. You know, all those things. Having somebody who did it at a high level is really important. I don't think by itself that's really wrong, to be honest with you. Uh, on the other hand, here is one of the major problems that I see, which is they've got UFC fighters who can give you some insight into stuff like that, who I don't know that they give you the best otherwise technical analysis. Now, you get some good ones with like Cruz and, and Cormier, but for my money, outside of them, um, you get good commentary. Don't get me wrong. Dan Hardy, I like a lot too. You get some good commentary, but you don't get like great commentary depending on your perspective. And this could be also a function of just interview style or not interview style, I should say commentary style. I'm looking to get really educated when I hear MMA broadcasts, particularly high-level UFC broadcasts. I need the person who is doing that to teach me something I don't know. You may not be looking for that, and then the broadcaster may not necessarily be trying to do that. But that's really what I am. That's what I'm geared towards, and I think that's probably the hardest thing to do. To be perfectly honest with you, um, not every UFC fighter is best for that. I thought Jimmy Smith was as good, if not better, than virtually any of the other commentators they had. But because he lacked that certain visibility, they they bounced him, it seems. I think that's a mistake. I don't know that you're serving the broadcast viewer in, when you do that. I, I, I would argue that you're, fun, you're actually not. I, I don't think it's good for your product to do that, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, so there's that. I think also I would say, even if you, even if you want to get someone who could do the kind of thing that I'm asking which is do it at a high level where people who you know who watch this stuff all the time can still learn something. Senko can do that. I've heard her level of analysis. She's right up there with the very best of them. 
Plus, I would also say, okay, she didn't fight in the UFC. She fought in Invicta. I mean, it's like pretty close. You know, and she does have some visibility on contender series and other things as well. It's not like she's some wallflower. Unless you want to make her and treat her like a wallflower, in which case that's all she'll ever be. To me, I just think the UFC needs to rethink this. Like, I work for Showtime, so obviously I'm going to have a perspective on this that you may or may not agree with. But Showtime has, um, they'll have, you know, Ray Flores and Steve Farhood comment on fights. And I don't hear boxing audiences really object to it. Neither of them fought even amateur as far as I'm concerned, much less professionally. Then on the big shows, you'll have Morrow, you'll have Pauly, who was great, obviously, and has commentated a lot of fights, and obviously, hello, two-weight world champion. But then you'll have Al Bernstein, and the, it works. You had Roy Jones, you had Jim Lampley, and you had Max Kellerman, and it worked. This idea that you can only have former UFC fighters, we just know it to not be true. In terms of getting a grade A product that really elevates the broadcast and really, but I mean, I guess if what you're trying to do is, you know, have a good broadcast and then, you know, I don't know, maybe some of your other goals aren't in conjunction with that. Like, oh, we also want to just have visible faces to keep people locked in. Like, why is Stephen A. Smith there? Because he's the best guy for the job or because he's really well known and blah, 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 blah. Right, So if you have a competing set of goals outside of we want to give the best commentary possible, well then I guess Senko and other folks like Jimmy Smith are not right for the job. But I would just really say I, I don't really understand doing business that way. I mean, if, I, as, I mean listen, I, 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 sometimes in this job I too often extrapolate between, or I should say um, I try to paste what I'm looking for onto a situation and then I come to realize after the fact, yeah, that's not what the organization's looking for. That may not even be what fans are looking for. I don't know as a fan what you're looking for. So I really hesitate to speak. But I'm a fan too. I mean, I'm, yes, I'm a media member. I didn't get assigned this job from some editor who said, okay, I know you've been covering hockey all your life, but uh, we need you now for the next couple of years to go cover MMA. Which, by the way, is often how it works at newspapers. I mean, I, I sought this out because I am a fan. I don't think my interests are that different. Don't you want to hear somebody competent who maybe they don't have the same level of celebrity, but they've got everything else? I, I always thought that was most important. And it's not like UFC broadcasts are suffering exactly in the sense that, oh, ratings have gone down since Jimmy Smith is no longer there. I mean, I don't think any of us are suggesting that per se. But I, I can't say that every time they, they crack the mics, they've got the very best people in those positions. they got a lot of the very best people, but not always. It would be nice to see something like that. Plus, if it's not going to be Sanko, who would it be? They've, uh, Misha Tate has done some good commentary, but obviously she works for one, so that, that would be out. Uh, I'm trying to think about, like, who is an outspoken... I mean, they just don't. you don't see a lot of women at the analyst's desk. So here's my other point. First of all, let's try out some more women for the job. Elaine Malay McFarlane has done a little bit for uh, of it for Bellator. And even if you don't want to give Senko the job, because you know, whatever, we need former UFC fighters there, okay, fine. Even if, the, even if the analysis is not that great. Why can't she work the analyst desk? Put her on the analyst desk. Right? Okay, you don't want her to be a color commentator. Does she have to do stuff where she's like taking you through the UFC's Instagram and sideline reporting, and look, those are good, honest jobs, and she's good at them. They're jobs that are too hard for me to do. 
But why can't she work the analyst desk? Is there some kind of reason that I'm not aware of? Like, you have to have only UFC fighters for that too? Really? I don't know. It seems like you're putting limits on... You're putting job requirements in place that don't get you the best candidate for the job unless what you're looking for is somebody who can fulfill some of the requirements of the job but then give you things like celebrity that maybe the other folks can't. I've never understood that. I want people to do the best job possible and then let the chips fall where they may. And if there's a spot in the heart of the UFC's producers for that kind of consideration, at a bare minimum, put her on the analyst desk. And the last thing I'd say about this is we've talked about it on the show, you know, a lot of these regional shows make their money off of the gate. Well, there's not going to be a gate for a while, at least in any kind of substantive way, which might mean the UFC has to scale out contender series. If they're going to have to scale out contender series, taking her off that assignment and giving her some other things to do, I think would be a better way to go about it. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas show live and in its entirety weekdays from three to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation channel 156 on Twitter. Follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.